I was skeptical about ordering foundation online. I can't even find a match in stores. Then I discovered Il Maquillage. Their online quiz found my exact shade in seconds. With Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. But I was obsessed on day one. It's so lightweight and natural. It's literally my skin in a bottle. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. On an island off the coast of Scotland, something was summoned from the depths of hell. Something that would end mankind. And the sort of thing you worried about, did it? Oh, yes. You did. Right, welcome everyone. This is episode 71 of the Comics in Motion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Phelps, and my co-host and very, very good friend is Mr. Dave Horrocks. Hi, Chris, and hello to our listeners out there. Welcome to Comics in Motion. What we like to do is we like to review movies and TV shows that are based on comic books. Myself, I'll be reviewing from the perspective of a long-time comic book reader. And I'll be reviewing from the TV and movie perspective. And what we also like to do is we also like to spoil the hell out of everything we review. So if you haven't watched our choice of the week, then we'd advise you to proceed with caution. And what we also love you to do is when you can head over to Apple Podcasts or your podcast catcher of choice and drop us a five-star review. And this really helps us to get out to other listeners and helps us to grow the show. So, Chris, where should we start this week? Should we, should we start where we always start, with Avengers Endgame? <laughs> Yeah, trust us, guys. We're not going to be renaming this comics in motion, the Avengers. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just so important to both of us and to, to the the podcast and you guys out there. It's David for me, and someone hit the nail on the head. I was listening to another podcast, and one of the co presenters actually said because they were never around for Star Wars, and obviously we were around for Star Wars. But I mean, I remember getting into Star Wars more when it was on the TV in the mid eighties, more than anything. I was sort of eighty three, eighty four. I was never. Obviously, I know Jedi was out, but for me, as much as I love Star Wars, I've been there at episode nine, you know, Rise of Skywalker, and that midnight launch. This, to me, feels like our Star Wars. I don't know why. And they said that. They said there's a lot of younger ones, younger than us, are saying it, saying they weren't around for Star Wars, but this just feels like something so important to sort of movie and, and historical time, a timestamp more than anything, which is... I, I just feel that way, Dave. I absolutely feel that it's... It, it gives. We've talked about this. It gives me chills thinking about some of the things that happened in the film. And I'll be honest with you, we both went back last weekend and watched it for the second time. And I ended up going on my own because Sam couldn't make it. And I was an absolute blubbering mess, Dave, even more than when I'd watched it the first time. I was absolutely crying, bawling my eyes out at them bits at the end. It just got me every time. But I still wasn't bothered about... If it's spoilers, guys, before I say this any further. So if you haven't listened to our episode and you've jumped it because of this, three, two, one, when Black Widow dies, Dave. <laughs> yeah. How about yourself? What did you think on the second viewing? No idea why, but but when Tony goes, that really got to me more more so than the first time. I, I don't know why that resonated more. Um, I did notice when Black Widow went what you'd said, and I'd read some articles on it as well, that, you know, I think that's the general consensus that it it didn't really hit home. And part of it was because you had this comedy, like, to me, to you, to me, to you kind of thing with Hawkeye going back and forth. So I think that's the general consensus. And uh, But first time round, I hadn't really thought too deeply about that. 
But I have to say, you know, you're always wondering on a second viewing, is it really going to hold up? Because you've got no surprises anymore. And it absolutely does hold up. I, I think I thought a little bit more deeply about the whole time travel thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, essentially the way I rationalized it in my mind is essentially it's like a, it's like when they go back, it's almost like a parallel universe. So that's why, you know, again, more just spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for all this. But when Nebula shoots herself, that's like she's still her own sentient being, isn't she? You know, so so she doesn't fade away back to the future style where you would assume there's only one universe. So therefore, if there's only one universe, what you change in the past reflects the future. So I, I was just getting a bit more nerdy about it, sort of thinking, oh, I can see how that that works now. And why they were kind of rubbishing Back to the Future. Not rubbishing it, but just uh, there was that one throwaway comment about Back to the Future, wasn't there? But the only bit I couldn't really rationalize then is why uh, Steve Rogers was there right at the end. Well, Dave, I'm glad you brought that up. And genuinely, guys, this isn't something Dave has teed up for me. I was reading a couple of things regarding some of the some of the sort of plot holes as such and the Russo brothers have actually came out and said that there's an too funny to Steve Rogers bit Dave that there's there's a bit with Thanos when Thanos comes through the portal how did he get all the army through but obviously what they're saying is she opens the portal to 2014 Thanos who's aware of what's going on so he would have prepared to bring him through and he and what they're saying is off camera that the audience isn't um, they, what they said is the Russo brothers, the audience aren't thick. They know off camera that Thanos is doing stuff. They know the character. Why do we need to put in like a 30 second or one minute segment of him getting his army together and sort of improving Tony's sort of time warp thing mm-hmm. like what's on the hands? And that's what it was for. He said he was basically telling the audience, we know that you'll get this because you, you know the story. You're clever enough to understand how he got the full army through, not just his ship. So that's one thing. And the other thing is which... Me and you had talked about off the podcast, and I'd said to you that I had a theory that even though Chris Evans has finished, there's potential there for a Captain America when he goes back with all the stones because he's gone there and he, there's a brief like question with Sam and Bucky, how did you want? And he just says, oh, yeah, fine, if there's no problems. But that could mean anything. And, and, and they said that there's definitely a story arc there that should be told. So whether that means at some point they'll be getting Chris Evans back as, as he gets older, Dave, because obviously he's aged at the end. And the, the idea that he was there was they actually said it's something to do with the time jumps that he did. He did a time jump as such to get to that point. So I, I don't completely understand that, but it does sort of make more of a logical explanation. And I still said to you, I still think, that even though Tony and that have all gone, there's still a chance he could bring them all back, Dave. I know it is the end of it, and it would be pretty cheap to do that. But in some respects, we don't know what he did when he went back in that bit back in time. It leaves everything open, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's based on comics, and in comics, everyone dies and everyone comes back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the only one who who doesn't is Uncle Ben. For years, they used <laughs> to say another one was Bucky, but. Someone did bring him back. Ed Brubaker brought him back. So, yeah, it, it could all happen. And, and I think, you know, God bless him. I mean, Chris Evans, he doesn't look older than when he started off, does he? No, no, he looks great, Chris Evans. I've got, And I've got to say, Dave, on a second viewing, I've never really been a massive 
Captain America fan as such. Not because I love the films, the Captain America films, but not, he was never one of my favourites, one of my favourites. Originally it was Iron Man, then it was uh, Thor, and then the, obviously the Hulk, and obviously, as you know, one of my friends actually said what I said in our review, that he was gutted the Hulk didn't get his revenge on Thanos, you know, after everything that happened yeah, in Infinity yeah. War. And he didn't understand how he became Professor. And I just said, look, Dave's explained this to me before. It's a, you know, it's a comic book um, reference to a character they created. So he's going to potentially listen to some of our podcasts, he said, because of this. So I said, yeah, get on it. But what I found really interesting is I absolutely love Captain America now, Dave. And it's what making me want to go back and watch all the Captain America films again. Uh, because I don't think I give him the appreciation he deserves, especially Winter Soldier, which I know everyone raves about as the best, even after Endgame, the best one in the whole series. So, yeah, I it's funny that, isn't it? I mean, it, I guess it depends on people's tastes, but I've heard, you know, negative stuff about the first Avenger and also, you know, the Thor trilogy as well. But I think for me now, now this is going to be controversial, Chris, because we yep. we mentioned Star Wars uh, before, but for me, the Captain America trilogy is the best trilogy that has ever been in movies. <laughs> Dave, I'm sorry, but I'm sticking with what I said originally. As a trilogy, one of my favourites is Back to the Future. As a trilogy, I've got to say, even though Endgame, I think, is the best one I've ever seen. I think that's, I think that's a fair comment, Dave. It's something I need to go back and revisit. And we've never reviewed the Captain America stuff on the podcast yet, have we? So yeah, maybe- yeah. Maybe that should be a project down the line that we actually do what we did with the Superman trilogy. And obviously, we're going to be doing Superman 4 again pretty soon. So, to finish the Christopher Reeve arc off. So, maybe that's what we need to do with Chris Evans, Dave, and do that at some point. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, I can't remember off the top of my head now, but I, I'm pretty sure we're reviewing the first Avenger in the next, in the next couple oh, of months. Great. Can't remember exactly where it is. But again, I didn't want to tackle all of the, the Marvel movies in one go and just ignore everything else. But you know, so they are spread out, and what we'll probably do is we'll go to Thor from that. You know, yeah. so we'll kind of we'll go through the MCU as they came out. Yeah, you know, unless unless something changes that, but uh, but no, I think I, I hear what you're saying about Back to the Future. That's got to be up there as well. I think, yeah, for me, it'd probably have been Star Wars before that. Um, but no, I do, I do think I do really rate that Captain America trilogy, and I think every movie is really, really good. Oh, good stuff, good stuff. Now, moving gears, guys, we are moving away from Avengers. I want to speak to Dave about this. I've requested just, just before we move away from Avengers, though. So, we'll just mention a little bit about Ultimate Alliance 3. So, I don't know if you've ever played any of the Ultimate Alliance games, Chris, but again, if you think stuff like Avengers. Civil War. This is all. This is all the Marvel Avengers in there. Now, a lot of people have a lot more affection for the first one. I absolutely love the second one, and it explores the whole Civil War storyline. You know, the pro and anti-registration as well. Absolutely love. One of my favorite games. Um, but the only problem with this one is it's only coming out on the Nintendo Switch, so it's coming out in July. And I might just have to get a Nintendo Switch specifically for this. <laughs> well, I've got one, Dave, and I've got to say you won't be disappointed. There's some cracking games on the Switch. So uh, I'd be interested to have a go myself. I've not played the other games properly. I've done it. I played the original one on a demo, Dave, and I've not played the other the second one. So Okay. I mean, have a look at the – when we finish up, have a quick look on YouTube. It's, it's Ultimate Alliance 3, The Black Order. 
So the Black Order are all like Thanos's right hand men, yeah, and woman. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that how that looks. But like I say, really uh, loved the first two. So uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing this third one. No, good stuff. Now, now, Dave, I did want to bring this up this week. I, like I said just a second ago, I, I, it's something I want to talk about. Is we've had Endgame. We've had for me one of the best films ever. You know, I, I just can't see anything beating it for a long time on the horizon. Anyway, unless something catches me off surprise, but. Uh, we had the Game of Thrones episode, episode three of the current series, the last series, which was an 83-minute, so we're taking the ad breaks out, it was an 83-minute long battle, literally, give or take 10 minutes either side for you know the end and start of the fight, whatever. Now, I'll set a scene for you, Dave. I'm into Game of Thrones. I have gone off Game of Thrones at certain points and then caught up. Very much like my Walking Dead love. I love the Walking Dead series one and two died off for me completely and not got no interest in watching it now. And I know obviously it's got better with uh, Jeffrey uh, Morgan in it. They've done it. So I know it's got better as it's got older, but there's a real lull for me within the midsection of the series. But with this, I've got back into it. I know it's difficult to follow everybody. And I was really looking forward to this event. Now it, it, it was on in the UK sort of Monday day or Monday night, but it was on Sunday night as well, if you'd recorded it. So it's on the same time as in the US and it's very difficult to ruin the Avengers for me because I blocked it. But oh boy, did Game of Thrones get ruined for me in some respects because people just have no you know, want an abandonment for any sponge tactics. That, yeah. As I mentioned to last week, people just love the little spoil. There was a, actually an American footballer who ruined Avengers. And I also think he, he ruined Game of Thrones as well, Dave. He just seems to want and he's just an absolute maniac, this guy, I believe. He just loves doing stuff like this. So. Yeah, I went into it thinking, amazing. I'm not an absolute Game of Thrones fan. I've watched every episode. I'll enjoy it. But there were so many people saying it was better than Endgame. And for me, it was more convenient than Endgame. The people who don't like Endgame have you've sort of called out the, the, the show. And I'm talking from, from someone who likes Game of Thrones, like I said, but not a massive fan, is I find it chalk and cheese for me. I, 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 I thought it was good. It was very dark, but that didn't bother me because it was fine. But I just wasn't in on it. But yeah, my sister-in-law, Sam, my sister was like, oh, I was crying. My, her cousin was I was crying. They're all they're having a big Game of Thrones party. And I think this is where, for us, when people say they don't understand Avengers, they're not going to watch it. When we don't understand how you can't enjoy it. This is me on the other side thinking, I don't always get Game of Thrones. I don't get what the, the loving is with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess so. But I have to say, I for me, I think Game of Thrones is the best thing on TV. <laughs> I've I've rewatched it, uh, going back to series one, episode one, about three times now, and I just love it. I love the uh, the political intrigue. You know, it's got. If you go back to that season one, it it is all about that, isn't it? It's all politics, and there's very little about kind of what's happening the other side of the wall and the fantasy element. And so you have little nods to fantasy and, and then it's just got more and more fantastical as as the series has, has gone on. Now, I have to say, I mean, it was very, very dark um, just in terms of how the picture looked, but I think that was an intentional choice. I don't think that was by mistake. And I thought, I looked at the the clock and it was 15 minutes in before the battle actually started. And they had quiet moments within that battle as well. You know, uh, not going to spoil 
too much about Game of Thrones, but there's moments in there where you have like Arya and she's avoiding the um, the undead. And it, it suddenly becomes like walking a Walking Dead episode, doesn't it? But um, I, I must say, no, I, I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, it was all over a little bit quicker than I thought it was going to be. But I think, you know, we've had eight seasons to get to this point, haven't we? Yeah. And so, um, no, I really enjoyed it. I must admit, though, I, I got to the end of the weekend. I've watched Avengers Endgame a couple of times. I'd watched the Game of Thrones, you know, the big battle episode. By Tuesday, I was exhausted, <laughs> just emotionally <laughs> yeah. done. You know, I was like, oh, God, I can't believe it. You know, we've had both of these things, you know, have been a decade in the making pretty much. And, um, yeah, I was shattered. So so I, I kind of, I love them equally, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's, it's strange, isn't it, how personal tastes are different, Dave. It's funny because... And that's what I love. That's the whole point of us reviewing it, doing the podcast. We have different backgrounds and different things we both enjoy and both don't like. And, and it's one of them series for me. I just, I like it, but sometimes I think, I don't know why I watch it sometimes because I think, do I like it enough? Could I just drop it? And, so, and I think I probably could be Game of Thrones, but I do it more because everyone talks about it pretty much, don't they? So you'd be yeah, <laughs> yeah. sort of out of the loop, really. It's almost like a bit of a peer pressure with this one. You've got to keep up with it. But I think because I've been invested in it from the start, I've got to finish it off, you know, watch all And I will. I will watch all of it. I'm, I'm more interested. The only thing I've found interesting, and spoilers again, guys, so like they said, three, two, one, is there was a joke we had about, obviously I'm a Man United fan, about... The pictures of the, the you know the the Night King's henchmen oh, yeah. saying it's no wonder he lost because he had Smalling and Jones, Chris Smalling and Phil Jones backing him up, you know, because it built all this thing and he didn't really do anything, did he, Dave? The Night King, he didn't do anything. He went to confront Bran and then it was just like you know it's a great double switch. There's a lot of plot holes in how she got through all of them, but either way, Aria, but either way, it was a fantastic thing. And when you look back, the whole of the show has led up to that moment for her. That is her story arc, to be honest. It was brilliant when you look back on her, her sword skills and that little switch with her hands. She does do that earlier on in the series. So very, very clever, Dave, and, and I, I'll give him that. But unfortunately, someone did ruin that for me, saying she was the OG and all this online. I'm like, oh. absolute muppets. You know, I, I, I think it's because I forgot it was on. I just went on. I didn't even think, you know, people. And then yeah. someone on my Facebook, some guy, who uh, we deal with, obviously, we do as a, as a friend has added me recently. He starts putting all stuff on, and then somebody even said to him, People haven't watched it. It's like, Come on. You know, I know you're excited and that, but we didn't go ruining Endgame, did we? I know we did the podcast and we give people plenty of one. That's the whole premise of this, but we certainly didn't go on the Twitter the next day or Facebook ruining it. And I'm like, Oh, come on. Have a bit of, you know, a bit of foresight for people. It's a shame. I, I noticed that it seemed to be a lot worse for Game of Thrones, to be honest, than yes. Endgame. You know, I people agree. were being broadly respectful and, you know, there's lots of hashtags, don't spoil the Endgame and stuff like that going around. And I'd stayed off social media completely on Monday. So it comes out in the US Sunday night, doesn't it? But yeah. unless you want to stay up ridiculously late, you know, I'd be useless the next day. So, and I noticed as soon as I'd watched it and, you know, went back to social media, it, there were spoilers everywhere. Right. Like, and I, I couldn't believe it because you'd had two things that, that were very much, you know, people didn't want to be spoiled. Not everyone is going to watch it on the first day it comes out. 
I, I couldn't believe it. And I don't know. I don't know why people do it. But uh, yeah, it was a lot worse for Game of Thrones. For, for me, Dave, one thing I will say Game of Thrones, the last series when Jon Snow does that very, very, very iconic scene where he's got the sword on his own and that whole army come at him. And there's a scene yeah. there where he's claustrophobic. They're all on top of him. And it's just him and he's absolutely struggling like mad to breathe. And for me, that was that is the absolute standout moment, even better than this battle. I know everyone says this is the best, but for me, I absolutely loved that in the last series. It felt as it felt as I was watching it, I was holding my neck thinking, Oh my god, I can't breathe myself, because it just looked horrible, but so well done on the on the camera. The cinematography was fantastic. So yeah, I, I think as well, Dave, I do I probably will owe an apology. I need to go back and watch it from the start once it's finished all the way through, because I think you lose track of who the characters are because they have such daft names. It's I know they're going to be called Chris or Dave and stuff. They have to be something because it's in a different world, but it's very difficult sometimes to understand who you are, especially if you come in as a newbie, not just, you know, starting from afresh. So, um, yeah, no, interesting, interesting. So, so Dave, I think it's time we went into what we're going to review and, and the old comic background. So what have we got this week, mate? Well, we're a few weeks late, aren't we, for this one? But uh, given the reviews it had we were, and how busy we were with the likes of Shazam and Endgame and stuff, we, we said we'd do this one a little bit later. So we are going to look at the reboot of Hellboy. So 2019 Hellboy. Good stuff. Now, what you, you got? Sorry, Dave, go on. Are you excited? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, as you've just mentioned, we've had two of the biggest, for me, Battles, the, the end game, nothing on top of it. I keep going on about it. I'm so fanboy. And as a DC fan, I'm proper on Marvel with this. Is It can only be described as going up a roller coaster and then coming down and then going up a small roller coaster and coming down that, Dave. There is no comparison. That is a terrible analogy. But And then, hold on, hold on. I'll carry it on. And then drive in into the back of a truckload of manure. <laughs> yep. Uh, old old uh, Mr. Jones's manure. Yeah, Dave, I remember it well. It's totally right. Another Back to the Future reference. But um, yes, you are correct. It's unbelievable. So Dave, hit me with what you've got, mate. Mike Mignola is a writer and artist, and he was the original creator for Hellboy. Now, there are a few little stop-starts as to where do you really consider he was created. Now, the very first time you had this concept drawing and it appeared in the Great Salt Lake Comic Con back in 1991, and you had, it doesn't look quite like our Hellboy, but it does look a little bit like Hellboy. So that was his first kind of appearance. Now, what I'd say is this is a bit similar to, remember way back in episode one, we said that, you know, Superman appeared in this science fiction fanzine kind of thing called The Reign of Superman. You know, he looked completely different and he he's unrecognizable from what we now know as Superman. So I guess I'd say this was a little bit like that. And also for his very next appearance as well, which was in Dime magazine number four, he looked very, very different. And so you wouldn't really consider him to be, you know, the Hellboy that we know now. Now, what some consider is his first appearance is in San Diego Comic-Con number two. Now, this was a black and white comic. So again, you know, he's drawn, he looks like the Hellboy that we know, but he doesn't obviously have that distinctive color. So kind of a fourth place where you can kind of half consider that, 
you know, he might might be his first appearance in terms of who we recognize today is in John Byrne's next man, number 21. So if you're a bit of a speculator and you want to look to maybe invest in some of these comics, there's four different starting places for you there. And it depends on your frame of reference, which one you consider to be his, his true first appearance. Now, in terms of his origin, and we do see a bit of this in the movie. So he was actually born in 1617 to Sarah Hughes. So she was a witch and an Archduke of Hell, Azale. Now, after Sarah tried to repent on her deathbed in a church in East Bromwich, Azale burned her away so that the baby could be born, chopped his right hand off and replaced it with the right hand of doom. So a lovely <laughs> tale of some of uh, of marriage there. No, no. Obviously, you know, fairly grisly, isn't it? And we get to see a little bit of that in this movie, um, almost like 80% of the way, th- way through of it. But yeah, so um, a bit of a quick one, quick run through uh, on that. But I thought that was quite interesting how, you know, that you had this stop start approach to, you know, when did he actually first appear? Now, Chris, how about the movie background? Yeah, so going back to 2014, again, the Hellboy creator, Mike Mignola, began work with writer Andrew Crosby on a new story for the character. They wanted to make it a sequel to uh, Guillermo del Toro's original two, which was Hellboy, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, and starred Ron Perlman. Now, Del Toro wasn't really interested. He actually declined a producer credit on the film and said that he wanted to actually produce his his own version of Hellboy 3. And because of that, Perlman decided that he wasn't going to be on board if Del Toro wasn't on, on board, and they sort of took the ball and went home. So in May 2017, Minola announced on his Facebook page that he decided to reboot it, initially calling it Hellboy Rise of the Blood Queen. They did drop off the Rise of the Blood Queen in the end and that Neil Marshall was going to replace Del Toro as the director and uh, David Harbour was going to star as Hellboy. And also, again, uh, Minola stated that the film was going to be another R-rated version of Hellboy. Uh, Now... This is a bit of a, it's not a strange one, but we'll get into It's more how my thoughts are after watching it. But when the project was announced, we all had written early drafts with uh, writers Andrew Crosby and Christopher Golden. And he said that they were actually going to be developing a new draft with Aaron L. Kaliti. Now, that's probably totally ruined his name, but we'll, we'll go with that, Dave, Kaliti. Um on developing the tone of the film, and I'm going to quote Cosby, uh, Crosby, he actually says, Neil stated that from the very beginning, he wanted to walk a razor's edge between horror and comic book movie, which was music to my ears, because that's what I was shooting for in the script, and precisely what Mignola does so well in the comics. And I'm going to go, ahem, I'm going to put an asterisk against that, Dave, as we talk about this later. Um, now, <laughs> principal photography and production started in September 2017 and was all shot in the UK, which I'm definitely going to get into when we talk about this, and Bulgaria. And it was actually wrapped in December the 27th, 2017, which for me could explain a lot with this film because it's been in sort of post-production for well over a year. Also scheduling with certain films coming out, I get that, but it's taken them nearly 15 months to get it to the actual big screen. So that's quite an interesting thing I want to bring up later. Now, marketing-wise, which is really interesting, September 2017, the first images of Harbour as Hellboy released. And then in September 2018, it was announced that a panel for the film will be held at the New York Comic Con in, on October 2018. 
and the cast and directors were there, and they actually played a two-minute real footage from the actual film, which actually got Dave really, really good praise, and it was leaked online as well. And again, he had such a great response on social media, YouTube, everything. It really went down really well, which was uh, quite interesting. The first trailer, official trailer, not the two-minute highlights, the first trailer was a bit hit and miss, and I did say that one. We actually, and you said the same when we saw the trailer, it looked off. But the second trailer, which came out in March, I was quite interested in. It actually looks a lot better. The tone seemed better than the first one, and, and I, most people consensus agrees with that. This is where it seems to go downhill from here, Dave, actually. It was released on the 12th of April in IMAX across the world, um, it was originally supposed to be out in January, but it got moved back. Again, scheduling-wise, it did come out a few weeks after Shazam, which was another, again, quite interesting. Now, box office-wise, this is where I can't see there being any sequels to this, if I'm being completely honest. It grossed $21.6 million in the US and Canada and $18 million in all of the territories. Now, that's a worldwide total, Dave, of $39.7 million when the production was $50 million. So they're already at a loss, plus marketing. So it's not looking too good for the old Hellboy. And what they said is they originally projected it, uh, making a lot more. They said it was going to be 17 to $21 million across 3,303 theatres in America. However, it made $4.9 million on its first day, including one point three eight from the Thursday night previews. And then it was estimate the estimates were lowered to twelve million, and it did actually make a debut opening of twelve million, which is pretty poor. And then also it finished third that weekend behind Shazam, which had been out for a couple of weeks, and the film that I've actually seen called Little, which is a sort of female version of Big as such, Dave. And it's never going to win any Oscars, Little, but it's a good romp if you go with a, a partner as such. It's a more of a chick flick. Uh, and then now the second week, it dropped completely. It dropped off by 68% and only earned $3.9 million, finishing 10th for that week. So it's absolutely bombed at the cinema everywhere. Now, critically response-wise, as in reviews, as always, Rotten Tomatoes have got it at 14% based on 180 reviews with an average user rating of 3.58 out of 10, which is poor. On Metacritic, it's at slightly better. It's at 31% out of 100 based on 43 critics, which also indicating as unfavourable reviews on their site, which you pretty much know that by the score. Audience poll by Cinema Score, my little favourite, which has an A plus to F scale. It's got it as a C, which is actually the lowest score for the franchise out of the three films so far. And Post Tracker, that's a really, really big review site. I've got it at 2.5 out of 5, which is actually a bit better than the scores above. And that, Dave, is all I've got today. And it was interesting. I sort of guessed it was going to be this, especially on the box office stuff, because there's no buzz about it. And it's, it's to be fair, it's shoehorned in between Shazam and Avengers Endgame. And you've got Captain Marvel still running at the cinema. So mm -hmm. it, it was never going to win, Dave. And, and to be fair, with a budget of 50 million, I know we'll get into this. You get what you pay for, I think, to be honest. So um, are you ready to go into your review, Dave? Let's go for it. The Blood Queen Nimue unleashed a plague on England back in the Dark Ages. King Arthur stops her, dismembers her, and scatters her remains across the country. In present-day Tijuana, Hellboy is sent on a mission to retrieve BPRD agent Esteban Ruiz, who's turned into a wrestling vampire. Reluctantly killing Louise, his dying words are that the end is coming. 
From there, Hellboy is assigned to help out the Osiris Club hunt down three giants, and their seer tells him his adoptive father was actually sent to kill him when he first came into the world. The Osiris Club, though, ambush Hellboy on the hunt, only to be taken out themselves by the giants. Now, Chris, what did you make? I think I know the answer, but what did you make to this whole first piece of the film? Oh, my God. If there was ever a come down from Avengers... This was it. And some, Dave. This is like jumping out of a plane without a parachute. What a, an absolute disgrace of a film for me. This this is... The, the, as a, I don't understand the King Arthur reference because, obviously, in the recent Transformers, they had... Anthony Hopkins is in that. There is a reference to King Arthur, again, the sword of Excalibur and everything. I don't understand why this is now come across into Hellboy. It's just terrible. I mean, as a wrestling fan, that wrestling segment with that guy, and he's the, the wrestler who's in the ring is a real puny guy, and he's got what's called a Mexican Lucha Libra outfit on, where they never reveal the mask, Dave. It's the whole thing. You'll get people for years under masks, and you get, like, it goes on, they'll never unmask him. It's like a, a religion in Mexico, and he's got the full outfit on. So they, they studied it right. You know, Tijuana, it's in South America. They've got, they're on that same sort of continent and that, which is fine. Really good, but when he gets in there, and I knew it was coming, I was like, "Oh my word, what is this?" And I, I, I just think it's—I I don't know what they're going for in this third. third to be honest, I, I think it's an absolute disgrace. But Dave, I've got to say now, we we don't really mention a lot of football and our rivalries and where we're from. I'm obviously proper Mancunian, support Manchester United. Dave is, you don't mind me saying, Dave, Dave is a Liverpool fan. He hasn't got the typical, you haven't got the typical Scouse accent, have you, Dave? You know, you've, you've got a sort of... Not, a, not like not like the Warthog in this, no. No. <laughs> oh, my word. I, I actually had to listen again with the accent. Now, I want to just, if you, you please indulge me on this, Dave, and, and guys listening. I'm actually calling myself out on this, everybody out there. Now, if you're an avid listener of the podcast, one bugbearer with me across these films is in the UK, we are depicted as a UK born and bred, you know, both of us are. And we've talked about this on the podcast and it both bears me more than it does Dave, but it, obviously is that they regionalize every UK person and stereotype them as a Alfred out of Batman, as someone who is an English gentry or have tea and toast and all. And they speak like that, like they work for the queen and they're a, you know, and you can tell by myself and Dave, I don't know whether it comes across, but we are from the north of the England, of the England, sound like I'm on Game of Thrones, we're north of England, but we have regionalised accents, which obviously in America, I can tell a New York accent from someone, you know, on the East Coast to the West Coast and that you can understand the accents now, but it bugs me so much and I've called out so many of these films when the typical English guy, especially Nick Fury, where that... Uh, Pierce guy was an absolute, I nearly called him Pincer Dave, because maybe you called him Pincer on the podcast, but P uh, Pierce was an absolute disgrace of an American person trying to be English with a terrible accent, the middle class, upper class, middle class sort of royal accent. But Dave, why the heck have they decided to have a warthog with a Scouse accent, which for anyone who's not from the England is someone from Liverpool, which is obviously the Beatles accent. And I'm like, it's, I'm calling myself out thinking, Chris, careful what you wish for you've got your wish in this and it's absolutely awful dave 
yeah. I mean, this this guy is like a, a professional scouse actor. The guy who's doing the voice, he's in. He's been in loads of bit parts, like Snatch and and things like that. And uh, yeah, it was a bit was a bit off putting, wasn't it? And like you say, it, it it doesn't really make that much sense that you'd have a regionalized accent. But I think with that in particular, and just I guess the whole like King Arthur angle on it, it did make me think that, you know, this is a very, very niche audience, isn't it? People yeah. who are going to like this, the whole horror comedy thing. I remember seeing years and years ago, a pretty awful film uh, with Hugh Grant in it called The Lair of the White Worm. And again, it was one of those very British comedy. Well, it's more horror than comedy, I think. But, you know, the the sort of little amusing bits in it as well. And I think that, yeah, I think they've kind of got what they wanted, but not really. I don't think many other people want it. <laughs> no, no, and I agree. And, and and he's very much Game of Thrones because in Game of Thrones, I remember the first couple of series, it was really interesting watching this series where you had Ned Stark, Sean Bean. Sean Bean's from Sheffield, which, again, is, is north. And we're, we're, well, I'm from Lancashire, and obviously you are Lancashire, Dave, aren't you? But you live down down near London now. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and Sheffield is part of Yorkshire. And now they've got, you know, Jon Snow, uh, Ned Stark, they've all got that proper Yorkshire accent, which I remember initially watching Game of Thrones thinking, excuse me, it was quite off-putting because they'd never been used to it. But as they've gone on, I think it's helped, especially some of the American people listening to a podcast saying like, oh, I love the British regional accents. But this isn't me being sort of, because I'm I'm from Manchester, Liverpool. We have such a bad rivalry on sport, with the, especially with the football, and and uh, you, you grow up with an absolute uh, hate of each other on the sports field. Dave, obviously, me and you are really good friends. It's not like that at all. But when it comes to sport, the rivalry it, it can be quite toxic. So it's not me sort of using that sort of bias and location bias. I just thought, you know, like you say, it's a fifty million pound film or dollar film, and. They've literally scraped the barrel on who they've got through because, like you, you could, you could have got. I think a lot of audiences probably get used to that sort of London accent, as in not the gentry, but the sort of Cockney accent, which is a London sort of slang accent, don't they? And, and I, I, I just, it was, it was just so off-putting. You could literally tell that the guy had been in a studio overdubbing his voice. It just really jarred with me, Dave, really badly. No, go on, finish. No, no, not just him as well. So I'm not going to be completely, uh, you know, the M62, which is the motorway that connects Liverpool, Manchester. I'm not just being completely against them. There's a Scottish accent later on in one of the demons and that, and it's absolutely terrible. I'm like, oh, this is awful. You know, I, I, it's a bit later in the film. It really, it really takes away any sort of story or, or art they're trying to tell for me. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, and again, it's an obvious choice, isn't it? And I think it's supposed to make you like think, oh, that's a bit weird. That's a bit, you know, and, and find it a bit funny. The fact that you've got this massive warthog and he's, he's uh, got a scouse accent. And again, his choice of language is very consistent. You know, some yeah. of the choice of words and stuff is, it's not someone, it's not a, uh, what's his name out of Generation X? Oh, the Irish guy. Yeah, Banshee. Uh, Banshee, yeah, so yeah. Don't do that now. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> it's, it's not a Banshee job. You know, this is a genuine, 
Scouser and uh, using very much language like that. So I guess that there was part of me that did kind of half laugh at it. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, it didn't fully work. I tell you one bit that did make me laugh, though, was when he kind of gets, he calls him out as the baby. You know, he holds the iron up to him. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, the baby starts crying and then he starts transforming into the warthog. And then he pulls him up by the ankle at his. <laughs> In this squeaky little scow's voice, he's like, "This is child abuse." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that bit did make me laugh. To be honest, oh, <laughs> and again, in particular, when you've got the little warthog, some of the swearing he throws at Hellboy's way, it, it did make me laugh. If I'm honest, oh, I, 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 yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I've cried out for this on so many things when we've we've said it when the English typical English guy comes on, but. I think I just need to keep my gob shut and take it for what it is because I, I respect what they tried to do, Dave. Don't get me wrong. Like I say, Game of Thrones, nail it with the regionalised accent. I, I really respect it, but it just doesn't work, especially as a demon. If he was a character, like you watch Snatch or you watch... Um, oh, what's the other one? Guy Ritchie one. Snatch... Uh, Lockstock. Lockstock. Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. It's set within London where you've got like regionalised accents in the whole film, but... As a demon, I don't know whether it's because of the way we've been brought up. And, and to be fair, it's not a very good film, this. So so it's, it, it really is sort of an absolute... It's not even a 10% close to Avengers in that respect. And that's not me just comparing that. It's, even to the original Hellboy and that, it's just awful. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about that because I think, you know, this, this had been changed, you know, as part of the pre-production. They'd gone from, you know, doing a sequel to completely rebooting it and making it an R-rated version. And I think within the first five seconds, the F-bomb's dropped, isn't it? Yes. And it just, I, you know, obviously I've read a few of the Hellboy comics. I, I should have mentioned, actually, there's some Hellboy on, on Amazon Prime, my latest favourite thing in the world, if you wanted to get over there and read some. But the the first two movies, I, I quite liked yeah, you know, and they were they were very, you know, visually they looked great. It was quite charming. I felt Ron Perlman definitely, you know, he is Hellboy even without the makeup. So I think I probably brought in a lot of that baggage of, of quite liking those first two movies. And I have to say the the tone of it it lets you smacks you right in the face within, like I say, that first five seconds. This is a bit different and I was trying to think to myself if I hadn't ever watched if those first two movies hadn't have ever been made or you know I just hadn't seen them would this jar with me so much you know mm -hmm. the fact that it is more grisly definitely you know definitely r-rated in terms of the language and the gore as well so it is kind of a horror movie isn't it but it's not there's not too there's not too many jump scares it's more just gory and I think probably for myself, I, I probably enjoyed it a bit less because I like those first two movies. And I think I think other people it will jar with in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, Dave, I think that's a fantastic point. I think the second Hellboy, I've not watched all the way through, but I know that I enjoyed it a lot more than what I'd seen here. And it it's no bias. I mean, I like Rob Perlman. I'm a big fan of Sons of Anarchy. He's claimed Sons of Anarchy. He's like the main bad guy for literally the whole of the show up until the last series and a half or two series. So I have a, 
an affiliation and I love for him as an actor. You know, I follow him on social media. I think he's a great guy. But in the same respect, it was, it was never about that. I think David Harbour does as best job he can. He's a great actor and it's not necessarily him or his acting lets him down. I just think it's a really poor script and it's a hard shoes to fill. Nobody wanted him in this part, Dave. And, and we, you know, he does as best he could, to be fair. I, I, I can't knock him at all. I just knock everything else around him. It's a shame, really, because some of the action stuff, it's proper gory, isn't it? There's no... It is like, you know, the Game of Thrones is one of the worst for gore on TV. There's no, nothing held back on this. And with it being R-rated stuff, you can do it. It's just that when there's a lot of dialogue for me and a lot of, like, they're trying to go for laughs, it just doesn't feel like it. It just feels just poorly executed. There's not anything where I've genuinely thought, oh, that's really good, that, in this film. It's just... It just plods along, doesn't it? From it's like he's to me. It feels like it's trying to find its identity, but it just simply doesn't. But I think David Barber does not a bad job. To be fair, of, of David Barber, Harbour. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not that bad. I need an airport. Uh, yeah, it, but yeah, he, he, he does, he's not that bad. To be fair, in my opinion, Dave. Yeah, no. I to be honest, five minutes in, I, I kind of forgot about Ron Perlman, um, and you know, I was just going trying to go with the story. So I don't think the change in lead actor, I don't think that's had much, you know, to do with the outcome that we've got. But you met, you touched on a point there, which I think is good, that he just bounces from one event to the next. Yeah. You know, and you don't really get any exploration of him as a character. He just ends up in these series of events. He's just getting beat up in here, let's see, every scene. He's, he's, he's getting a good idea, didn't he, all the time, which is a... A shame because you want to care about him, Dave, don't you? I, like you say, you know me, I'm a sucker for redemption. That hence why the Avengers and that I absolutely love the end of it because I love that redemption where everything's out. There's nothing else you can do. You've got to, you basically you've got to do or throw a hail mary to win and and you know get things back or whatever you've got to do. I love them type films, Rocky things like that. But this is just like it, it's a shame. Like you say, you like I said there. I, it's just a shame, really, with him, because it would have been nice to put a bit more meat on his character, I think. Yeah, I think so. But I think what I would say is that I don't think I hate this as much as everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, again, it, it's kind of jarred with me that, you know, the you've got the whole region, you've got the Scouse Warthog, um, you've got the the F-bombs being dropped, it's very much more grisly and gory than the, those first two movies. But I think once I'd thrown away that baggage, I think I was I was just thinking, oh, right, okay. And, and particularly knowing, you know, it costs 50 million, which is not which is not a huge budget, is it? No, no, you, you, it's a great point, to be fair, Dave. Now, they did the first Deadpool with 50 million, didn't they? Yeah. But essentially, the only real CGI you've got in there as Colossus, isn't it? And, you know, sort of Deadpool's eyes. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot. And essentially, you go from two sets or three sets. You know, you're either on the bridge, you're at his home, or you're at the helicarrier. Those are the three sort of places that you go to. So so I thought for this, I thought it looked pretty good for what they did, for what they had with the budget. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I, I think as well, I think you are correct as much as... I think it's a mess. It's nowhere near Batman and Robin, Dave. You know, I know it's a different era and stuff. And fast forward 23, 24 years, but uh, it, it's not absolutely horrendous, but it's not good either. It's just, 
I don't know. Well, I say we, we're at the, you know, we can get on to the next bit. There. <laughs> yeah. But that, that initial bit, I was not impressed with it at all. We'd already seen the review. So I didn't go into it thinking, right, this is going to be rubbish. It's going to be rubbish. We, we've both proven watching stuff recently. Like, we keep going back to Venom, how much we enjoyed it. So I don't take the reviews for anything other than research purposes at the moment until I've actually seen it. And then I'll go yes or no, the people were right. So, yeah. It is really hard not to be influenced a little bit by them, yeah. though, isn't it? And I think that... You know, a lot of people would have chosen not to go and watch this based on that Rotten Tomatoes score. Yes. And, you know, you've seen some of the, you know, non-spoilery reviews as well come through. And so a lot, a lot of people might have gone to this and then have chosen not to. Yes. So the the power that that Rotten Tomatoes score has, for me, is absolutely disproportionate. Because it came out, when I first saw it, it was like something like 9%. It was an absolutely woeful score. But that's not people going on. That's not reviewers going on and saying, right, out of 100, I mark this as 9. I think they go on there and they say whether it's, you know, they'd go and watch it or not. And then based on that, you know, so if you have 100 people and then 9 of them say they would watch it, then that gets to your 9%. Yeah. So it's 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 difficult, and I think that metric is misinterpreted a lot of the time. So when I say about being influenced by it, I went into it thinking this is going to be terrible. Yeah, and like I say, after the first, you know, this first act here, I, I did. You know, it's, it's not it's not good movie, but I didn't think it was as terrible as I was led to believe. Yeah, no, I think that's fair comment. I think that's fair comment. Well, let's get into the middle section. So. Hog-like Scouse Fairy, Grugach is set on retrieving the remains of Nimue to piece back together her body and have his revenge on Hellboy, who exposed him for replacing a baby all those years ago. Hellboy wakes in the home of Alice Monaghan, a medium who he'd rescued from fairies as a baby. A SWAT team is sent in to retrieve Hellboy under the command of his adoptive father, Brudenholm, or Broom. He informs him that someone's taken Nimue's remains and they're seeking the last piece at the Osiris Club. They're introduced to M11 agent Ben Darmio and along with Alice join a team to head to the club to find that everyone's been slaughtered. Alice channels the seer's spirit who reveals Nimue's plan to use Hellboy to bring about the apocalypse. Hellboy is summoned by Baba Yaga and agrees to give up one of his eyes in return for the location of Nimue, though he doesn't set a time on when he'll hold up his side of the deal. Now, Chris, this second act get any better for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing that's pretty good, I know at the end there, he, the, the Baba Yaga, Dave, he's mentioned, the only thing that I was buzzing about was nothing to do with this film, but Baba Yaga... Have you seen John Wick? Uh, the first one? Or... Yeah. Yeah, one. yeah. So when the Russian mafia guy, who unfortunately in real life has sadly passed away now, says to him about John Wick, doesn't he? he says to his son, which he's obviously out of Game of Thrones, he's uh, Keith Allen's son, isn't he? Uh, he's in John Wick, and he says to him... Oh, Alfie Allen. Uh, Alfie yeah, Allen, yeah, uh, you're, right, you're right. It's been a yeah, few years since I watched it. Yeah. I, love, I love John Wick. I love that film. And he says to him, doesn't he? John Wicks, uh, we used to call him Baba Yeager, you know, he's he's the one who we'd send in to kill the devil or whatever, you know, and all this sort of thing. So that's the only reason I was having a little bit of a, a John Wick gas. And, and <laughs> coincidentally, John Wick 3 is actually out this month, which I can't wait for. But uh, on a side note, um, yeah, what happened here, Dave, for me again, which totally took me off, is you talk about characters being stereotypes in certain 
things and you can never get away from them being that person. I understand that like, as a, a, a point of reference, people like Christian Bale has struggled with that. Henry Cavill's going to struggle. He's doing The Witcher at the moment, which is a massive video game for Netflix series. You've got, obviously, the Avengers. Robert Downey Jr. had a successful career before the Avengers, but people like Chris Hemsworth, even Chris Evans, who was always a bit of a middle-of-the-road actor, they're going to struggle now to do anything because they are typecast as a character. But I never thought I'd be watching a film and Mo of EastEnders, as in Big Mo, would come on. He was actually Gary Oldman's sister in real life, the actor Gary Oldman, you know, Commissioner oh, Gordon. Yeah. Right. The Big Mo of EastEnders is his... Uh, is his sister. She pops up in this film in the dodgiest cafe ever. And I was like, oh, no. And then the Asian postman out of EastEnders, he's one of the henchmen as well. I was like, <laughs> oh, they've definitely took a break from EastEnders to record this nonsense. You know, and it was like, because they're in London at this point. I was like, and it, I know it sounds daft, if I shouldn't. And I'm referencing some of massive actors and stuff like, you know, Scarlett Hansen, people have a great success, but I never thought Big Mo would come into my head and they'd be talking about her on a podcast day. But again, she was just playing Big Mo out of EastEnders. You know, I was like, this is yeah. terrible. So, so there was a couple of things where they used actors in this and I was like, oh, you've just took me away from any, any traction you were gaining. The only thing I like with this film is the fact that there's pretty much action from the get-go in there. It's just constant, like you say, bang, bang, bang. Hellboy's just getting battered all over the place. He pretty much doesn't win a fight hardly in this one. It's, it's, I like that adversity side of it, but there's no direction or understanding of what's really going on. And you don't need to know about the original films, but just tell some sort of story that I'm invested in. I'm not invested in anything that's going on in this film, I must admit. Yeah, it's it's not it's not very clear, is it? And I think... If they took out a third from this script, I think, and just allowed a bit of character development, a bit of room to breathe, then I, I think it would have made a better movie. But, you know, we've, we were saying about the budget being low budget. I guess that's one of the ways they keep it down, isn't it? By casting EastEnders uh, <laughs> actors rather than Hollywood A-listers. <laughs> but again, and this again, though, Dave, to me, like, you you come up with a great point before about the regionalised accents and the way it was shot and that. Is this film supposed to be aimed at people from the UK? Because if it is, it, they've missed a trick because there's not been any real marketing for the film other than the odd poster in the cinemas and that. There's been nothing. But it, it feels to me, Dave, almost like a Guy Ritchie-type film where it's all based centrally around the United Kingdom and stuff like Snatch and... Lots of two smoking barrels. Totally different films. It's not comic book based or anything, but they are for a UK audience, really, aren't they, Dave? You know, unless you really get and you've lived in the UK, there's a lot of stuff in them films would go over your head, and it feels like that's what they're doing with this. But it just, it just, it just missteps so much for me. Yeah, I, I think whether it's aimed at the UK or not, it just the whole thing does have a real British feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I know, I, I think to give it that British feel, I think is a is an intentional choice. Now, I don't know if you remember, um, and I can't think that this come up in your movie background, I'm not sure, but uh, do you remember Ed Screen was initially yeah, yeah. asked as Ben Darmio? Yeah. Did you mention that in there? No, I didn't. All right, okay, no. okay. That's all right then. Um, 
wasn't sure if I just zoned out. <laughs> <laughs> but he was initially cast as Ben Darmio, and he himself stood down from it because there's a lot, you know, historically Hollywood has just whitewashed characters. And so, you know, the characters of Korean, is American, but I think of Korean descent. And so Ed Screener just said, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm not going to be part of this whitewashing. So, so that's why we got the other chap. But he's not British in the comics. He's American. Right. So, so to make him British and, and like you say, you've, I mean, to us, because you've got Mo from EastEnders, it immediately has a British feel, but, but just everything about it. And like I say, that, that old Hugh Grant film, that old British horror film that I don't know why exactly I, I thought of, even Excalibur, there was an old movie called Excalibur. I kind of thought a bit of that as well, all just very, very British movies. And so, yeah, it's it's got to be a choice that it can't be by accident. I mean, even Lovejoy, <laughs> you've yeah. got in there. So, yeah, yeah, you Shane, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that is a definite choice. Yeah, and, and sorry as well for our international listeners, uh, guys. EastEnders is a soap opera, very much like if you're from America, uh, the Young and Restless, and things like that. It's not as glamorous as that. Don't get me wrong, but that's young. Uh, Oh, Big Mo is Gary Oldman's sister, as I mentioned. So just in case you, as a point of reference, you're wondering what EastEnders was. He's one of the most successful soap operas in the UK, alongside Coronation Street. So uh, she's a market stall Dick Wheeler dealer who's in her 60s. So it's just, you'll understand who she is if you watch the film. Terrible. Yeah. Just getting back then to the to the Giants. I mean, again, I, I can't help but feel like I thought they looked all right. You know, and yeah. again, I, I, part of that unintentional bias that I've gone into this with is I think, well, you know, this is a low budget and have they done well with what they've got? Yeah, I think they've they've done pretty well. And and again, just another grisly, grisly scene where, you know, the Osiris Club's backstabbed, literally, uh, Hellboy, but he's managed to to escape essentially because the giants started feasting on all of the Osiris clubs. So I thought that was both quite impressive and equally grisly. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's probably the best fit of the film for me, that double cross, because Hellboy does say, doesn't he? This looks like a good spot for an ambush, and then they just attack him, don't they? Start stabbing him and everything yeah. else. So. And again, I, I think one of the lines that worked for me was when he was, you know, so a bit later when he's he's been rescued by Alice and then, you know, the SWAT team uh, catch up with him and stuff. And, and he says, like, you know what's worse than being stabbed in the back? Being stabbed in the back. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah. he had literally been stabbed in the back, so yeah, no, I, th- I thought that was that was pretty good. Um, I mean, jumping forward, like I said, mentioned Ben Darmio. You know, you know he's he's got something about him. He's got all the scars and whatever, so you know something's going to happen later on there. But um, I thought one of the creepiest bits was the Baba Yaga bit. Yeah. You know, and and she is a she's a Russian witch from folklore. She, you know, she goes around on a house with these chicken legs, which you don't really see in the movie. But I thought the movement of her, you know, and everything, I thought was just really, really gruesome. You know, and if I was if I was on the fence with, ah, could I let maybe the older my older daughter watch this? You know, when it got to that bit, I'm like, nah, no way. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, no, true, true. But and then she she seals the she seals the she seals the deal of uh, him giving her one of his eyes. Yeah, with a kiss. <laughs> like, oh man, that is awful. <laughs> yeah, true, true. This is mad. The team arrive just as Nimue's resurrection is completed by her coven, but they're unable to stop her, and Alice is poisoned in the battle. The surviving witch from the coven directs Hellboy to the resting place of Merlin to save Alice, and he tells him he's descended from King Arthur himself, and he should take Excalibur to stop Nimue. Though having a vision of himself bringing on the apocalypse with the sword, he decides to pass. Nimue sets about inflicting a plague on London and attacks the M11 base. Hellboy and team follow Nimue to St. Paul's Cathedral and are met by a powered-up Grugach. Damio reveals himself to be a were-jaguar and works with Hellboy to battle Grugash, though it's Nimue who ends the battle by killing the warthog creature. Nimue kills off Broom when, re- when Hellboy refuses to draw Excalibur, prompting him to draw the sword which opens a portal from Hell to London. Alice channels Broom for a pet talk with his adopted son and Hellboy decapitates Nimue and throws her body into the portal to close it and save the day. Okay, so again, in this final act, Chris, there is a lot going on, including a trip to see Merlin. So <laughs> how did this one work for you? The same? It's just a mess, Dave. The, the whole Merlin thing is just, for me, it makes no sense. I don't know whether, obviously, I've never read the comics, but is there any point, a reference of King Arthur and Merlin and Excalibur in anything to do with Hellboy, Dave? Or is this just something they've just uh, made up for the film? You know what? I think there is. So, so in the original two Hellboy movies, there's not a great deal of comics references in there. This movie is absolutely chock full of comic references, but so chock full that it makes it just too busy. So there's a lot of comic references in here, a lot of story that's just taken directly from the comics, from multiple stories in the comics and worked into it. And a lot of a lot of it, you know, a lot of folklore, a lot of history, a lot of myths. It's all part of the, the Hellboy comics. So, so yeah, the, this is a lot more faithful to the comic books. Yeah, but it's kind of proof that just because you're faithful to the source material doesn't make a good movie. It, a movie or a TV show, it, it still has to stand on its own as a story in itself. And I think, yeah. you know, I can't remember... A, Another really good example. I'm sure we. I'm sure we must have reviewed others where we have looked at something and it's been f- pretty faithful to the source material, but you just don't get a good product at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. No, they, uh, yeah. It's it's it's. I, I've struggled a lot, Dave. This last third of the film, I really, really did struggle. I, I, I just didn't care. I, I know we joke about some of the stuff we've watched and you look at the clock and think, oh, my gosh. You know, we've had a laugh and a joke, haven't we, about some of the bad ones because they're the most enjoyable ones to podcast about. But this is neither. It's not something that I was itching to talk about, not because of Avengers or anything like that, but I just kept thinking there's nothing out of it that I can't really – we can't really have a proper joke over it other than the Scouse accent and stuff for me. It, it's, it's just – a really badly told story. It's just, it, 
it's just so wishy-washy and, and these characters coming in all over and, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times, I know we get the whole thing where Hellboy's supposed to take the sword, in he? And, and he's got like this one chance and he doesn't take the sword, does he? Because he's worried, he sees a vision, doesn't he, of what's going to happen and he gets his horns and everything. But I was just like, I don't really care. You know, like, I, I don't know. I just thought it was poor, a really poor film. Yeah. Well, like I say, I think they, they didn't give it time to breathe. They didn't invest you. I mean, but one of the things that, that I can think of, excuse me, one of the things I can think of from the first movie is, you know, you can see how many cats Hellboy's got. I don't know if you remember that at all. Yeah. And, no, you know, no. he, he has little moments where he's pining after his girlfriend. And I think, those kind of moments help you understand what he is as a person. Whereas when he's just bouncing from situation to situation. Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a nectar mattress with award winning layers of comfort. You can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. You don't really get to know about Hellboy, do you? You don't get to know about any of the characters. No. Just bouncing from one thing to the next. Um, and again, you know, they, they're obviously playing on the comedy, aren't they? One of the the lines, I, it's not laugh out loud funny, but it's just kind of mildly amusing. They they sort of spoiled in one of the trailers, one of the R-rated trailers, where, you know, Nimue's been uh, fully formed again by a coven, and she's trying to make a proposition to Hellboy to essentially be his king. And he says, well, you know, it's just not going to work out because I'm a Capricorn and you're, you know, effing nuts so i i think again they're just trying to play on that on that comedy but not quite hitting it on the spot where it's where it's genuinely really funny but um yeah i i think you know when i was thinking back to it and writing down my notes and stuff there was just a lot going on i mean a a trip to merlin you know again the the baba yaga thing the fact that she'd summoned him uh at the end of that last act you know wasn't really clear well why why did she do that? You know, just right at that moment when it was quite handy for him to make the deal, you know, and, and because you've not learned about the character at all, when he finally draws the sword and, you know, he's got all this power, there's no real good explanation for him to throw that away, is there? No. You know, and, and no. basically go against what he's, what he's built to do, bring on the apocalypse and, you know, because of his upbringing from Broom, I guess, you know, bringing him up just as a normal child, that, that's helped to form his personality and whatever. But the, it doesn't really feel satisfying, does it? That it's just like, well, of course he's going to turn it down because he's, he's the good guy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're totally right. You're totally right. The story art needs it as well, but it's not very impactful, is it? Really, you sort of want him to start fighting back against these people who've really pretty much got the better of him, haven't they? Bar a couple of little skirmishes, but <sighs> I don't know. It's a shame. It's a shame. What, what, so what much depth to the character? What did you make to the little? I think it was a little nod to Predator. 
I didn't even Did get you spot that, that? No, no. So when Ben was going on about, you know, what had actually happened to him, you know, you got this this scene in the jungle essentially, and it just looked like Predator to me. You know, the very first oh, Predator yeah, yeah, yeah. in the jungle yeah. when people are getting snatched up and what have you. But yeah, I mean, w- was that not a surprise, the fact that he's actually, you know, this were-jaguar-type creature? Yeah, very good. I didn't even think of that, Dave. I think I just lost all interest. <laughs> You're probably on <laughs> your phone at that point. <laughs> yeah, now you've said it. Yeah, it's so obvious. But yeah, I did get that at all. Um, yeah, yeah. So he obviously, you know, because you think earlier, because you've had the the, the crisscross, the double cross from the Osiris Club, and you see him earlier, don't don't you get in a special bullet to take out Hellboy? Yes. And he makes the line, he says the line about, you know, he's got to aim for the hearts because, you know, the brain would be too small a target. So, you know, the fact that, you know, he changes and they both work together to take down Grugach. Or, or actually, they don't take him down, do they? It's Nimue who, yeah. who eventually kills him off. And again, you know, just another playing on a little comedy moment. She doesn't just kill him. He shrinks down to his previous baby-sized form, doesn't he, just before he pops and uh, and he's killed off. Yeah. So, you know, again, they didn't necessarily give that give Ben Damio a, a, a enough room to breathe either. So it's like, all right, he's just going to turn into a wear jaguar, and they're going to team up to take down the bad guy. Again, it, it all worked conveniently to the script, but you know, it, it wasn't really satisfying. They did they didn't really earn it. I don't think. No, no, I agree. I agree. It's it. It was obvious, but for me, it was pretty toothless as well, unfortunately. It's sad, really, Dave, because I think there's so much there for Hellboy as a character. There's so much more they could do with with him. And I'm not saying that the idea and concept of this film is wrong. I just think, like you said, a lot of the the criticism is down to the budget and also a, a lot of the storytelling. Like you said, they're trying to be true to the comic, and I just think they missed the complete beat. The, the way it's portrayed on the screen is not, I think, how they've probably written it, if that makes sense. It's, and I'm not like this for being too overly critical, but I just, I can't even sit here and absolutely roast the film and say it was, you know, it's because of this, this, and this. It's just a weird film. It really is. It's, it's so strange and uh, such a, a bad thing because if people have wanted a Hellboy sequel for a long time and, and like you say, forget Ron Perlman's in it. Forget all that. It's just, for me, it's just really poor. Yeah. Like you say, it's nothing to do with David Harbour. But I thought, again, some of the effects, well, it was definitely on the gruesome side, wasn't it? When Nimway's kind of plowing through London, essentially. I mean, this is going to be a global plague, but obviously it's kind of convenient and budget-driven that it all just appears on a London high street initially. But... Um, yeah, I, I again, I, I just thought they, they probably worked within the budget or hid the budget quite well for those scenes. Uh, a few little monsters popping out of the hell portal and that, and again, finishing off people in a in a fairly gruesome way. Um, uh, well, again, I'm not sure if it was intentional, but uh, when Grugach is fighting Hellboy, and uh, I don't know if you caught this, but... He says, Hellboy, I'm going to finish you off. And Hellboy's lay on the floor and he just sort of moves his legs wider a bit and says, good luck with that. (laughs) I don't know if that was intentional or just my mind. Um, But yeah, again, a lot of action just thrown at it. 
but yeah, I probably can't say say too much more about that. You know, again, we 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 have the day saved, um, all a bit expected and and formulaic, really. Yeah, which is a shame. And like I say, I've, I tried not to be like you said, going into it with any sort of negative thoughts. And I don't, I don't go into them like that because you, you can enjoy a film for what it is. It just, if something hooks you and takes you in, you can enjoy it. And it's not because of what we watched last week and being so epic. It, I, I'd be the first one to say the one thing I said last week was, I, I, I think I've probably scored some things a bit higher because of how good Endgame is, but this is just a really bad film. It's not anything to do with like a hangover from the Avengers. It's just a, it's just, it's just poor. Um, yeah, that's it, Dave. Do you want to go into the scores, Dave? Let's go for it. So, Dave, I think it was me last week. So, uh, if you would like to go first, my friend, please. Yep, no problem. Now, I think I went into this fully expecting this to be an absolute car crash. We'd watched the first trailer. And the first trailer did not look good at all. But the second trailer, you know, turned it around a little bit and made it look a little bit better. And so I came in a little bit confused about, am I expecting the car crash? Is it, is it actually going to surpass my expectations? You had the Rotten Tomatoes score as well, which set expectations a bit lower. But I tried to get rid of all of that baggage and just go in and watch it for what it is. Now, Within the first few minutes, you know that this is absolutely an R-rated movie and this is not going to be anything like the previous Hellboys that we've seen. But once you get rid of that, I think I started to enjoy it a little bit more. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not a good movie. Everything just goes along at a pace and it just bounces the character Hellboy from one scene to the next and you don't really get any room to breathe. You don't get any character development. I thought some of the special effects were pretty good, considering the budget. They weren't spectacular, but you know you have to you have to understand that you know depending on how much money they've got to spend, some things are going to look better than others. I think I know where you're going to send this, but I think I'm going to surprise you a little bit. I'm going to send this to Hell's Kitchen because I do think. I think I could watch this again. And I think I could possibly even being further removed from expectations that this is going to be anything like those first two movies. I think I could enjoy it. But I think there's people who enjoy kind of horror comedy <laughs> are in a very, very niche audience. That's not to say they don't exist. And of course, you get the end credits, don't you? You get a couple of nods, you know, hints to a potential sequel which i guess everyone does these days unless something spectacular happens on the dvd sales which i don't really expect this is not going to get a sequel so unfortunately i think this character may be on ice for a, a decade or so depending on i guess if if Lionsgate needs to keep hold of the rights they need to keep making movies we might see it then but otherwise i, I don't think we'll see him again but yeah, so it's Hell's Kitchen for me. I, th I think some people will find enjoyment in this. And it's certainly not as bad as, you know, a lot of people are making out. No, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, for me, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. I'm not going to say it in Fateful Lines. It's not. There's a lot of good action in this. But the storytelling for me is way off. And I'm not one who, who totally 
there has to be a story with certain films. It can be an actor as such that I like, and I, I'm just on board with them. And it, like I say, uh, David Albert does a good job with what he's got. He, he can you can only work with the tools you're given, and it's a shame because there's so much potential there for this. This could have been an absolute cult classic, but for me, it just falls way short of, of anything. Uh, uh, and it's certainly not a, something that should be coming out in the cinema. It, it, it it's just awful you know it's 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 so hard to describe you know we, we call that batman and robin saying that's the worst film i've ever seen and i think it probably was because there's no excuse when you've got that i mean let's go back to 1997 and you've got 150 million to throw at a film and they came up with that and that's even with inflation so you could pretty much maybe add another 100 million on that going you know 22 23 years ago when it was made this is done a third of that budget. So I have respect for him trying to do that. And I think the effects are pretty good. The practical, the CGI stuff that they do use, it's good. It's not something that they scrimped on. So it's not something where you think it's like a proper B-movie. It's not. But it's just a bad film. I wasn't interested. Like I say, the regionalised English accents just took me away. And the casting as well was really unusual for the UK sort of actors that they, they went with because they are sort of... They're not household names. Like, if you watch the soaps, you know who they are. But even so, for someone who has to sit there with my wife most nights and watch YouTube with one eye on YouTube, one eye on the soaps, I knew exactly who they were. So that was a bit of a chuckle to myself. But, yeah, it's a shame. So I was contemplating sending it to Hell's Kitchen, Dave, but I just simply can't. I'll never watch it again. It'll just mark down into the doldrums for me. So it's going to the Phantom Zone. But I also get what you're saying, to be fair. I'm not completely thrown under the bus. It is watchable in places. It's just how much you want out of a film and how much you can forgive at times. So, yeah, Phantom Zone and uh, a great one to review, Dave, I've got to say. Well, it's certainly a bit different from Shazam and Endgame, which we've seen at the at the movies recently, isn't it? So, yeah. uh, and again, it's it's good. I, I think when we started this podcast, I really wanted to make sure we covered comic based properties that weren't just DC and Marvel, and you know, all relied on uh, people putting their wearing their underpants on the outside. So this is this is definitely that, isn't it? It's as far away from something like Shazam as you can possibly get. But uh, so yeah, I'm I'm glad we've done it. But uh, yeah. yeah, not 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 the best. It's not going to be the film of the year, I don't think. No, no, not <laughs> not at all. Uh, now before we go, big thanks again, guys. And also, we've got a little bit of a social media experiment going. We're about thirty followers short on our podcast hosting site. So if you can get over to podbean.com forward slash comics in motion. We need about 30 of you to give us a follow on there, guys. And uh, we're hit 2,000. It's been an absolute rollercoaster from myself and Dave. We didn't think we'd get more than 100 followers. So we're really blessed and thank everyone who listens and all your support on social media. That's some great tweets this week as well. So if you want to get over there, we really appreciate your help and support. And obviously, if you want to contact the show on Twitter, it's at Comics in Motion P. And on Email is comicsinmotionpodcast at gmail.com. Now, Dave, I usually throw it you under the bus here, or you throw me under the bus, but I don't know how you're going to lead us out. If you want to lead us out, have you got anything for us this week, mate? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, Dave, I have got something for us, to be fair. Now, we have a little tagline for the podcast. It's a little bit of in-joke in with an average podcast 
becomes no responsibility. But with an average film and no budget, it becomes a mess. See ya. Where's my fucking violin? Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Out there, there's a fifth century source who wants to bring down the curtain on London and the world. Great. Homework. The division hates him. Okay. I'd appreciate a prophecy with more relatable stake. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Why did Sasha Baron Cohen get chased by the Secret Service? What made Sarah Silverman stand by her friend Louis C.K.? How did Mindy Kaling miss out on SNL? I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and on The Last Laugh, comedians reveal how they're staying funny in a world that's falling apart. As long as I'm laughing, yeah. I'll laugh at the things I say or anyone else. <laughs> I just like laughing. Next up, how everything changed for Nick Offerman when he became Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. Life was like, oh, by the way, things are going to get <laughs> way more super crazy. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.